0: You're listening to the Co Main Event
1: podcast and now your hosts Ben Folks and Chad Dundas.
0: That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts podcast. I'm your co-host from bleacherreport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week?
1: I'm doing all right. Do you notice? Do you notice anything about my face? You see what's going
0: on here? It uh, looks like you is? are you trying to grow a beard. Playoff beard? What? But you shaved the neck, though. Playoff beard. You're one of those guys that when you grow a beard, you shave up to the neck to the jawline. Well, I don't want to look like a damn hillbilly, so you do I? Still look like a guy in the Just for Men ad. I still, I want to playoff hockey beard, and you're sitting over there telling me you don't want to look like a damn hillbilly. You lack dedication, my friend. I
1: don't want to look like I'm like I'm coming from the rock or something. I want to look like I'm from one of the classier parts of Canada, like Moose Jaw. Moose Jaw, there you go. The
0: Moose Jaw kid, Ben Folks. I I could I could see myself. I'll fashion myself as the Moose Jaw kid. Well, good luck. This is a deal, I assume, where everybody makes the playoffs. Every team in the league. That is correct. Um,
1: although the bottom two teams play in the toilet bowl just to decide once and for all who is the absolute worst team in the league. They cannot advance beyond that. My team slightly above the bottom two. So therefore we could still win it all, Chad. We go tonight against Rocky Mountain Surgical Solutions, 7.30 PM puck drop down at the Glacier Ice Rink. And I'm going to say this is where our improbable title run begins. It's going to
0: have to. Is it one and done? Yes. So win or go home?
1: Win or go home. Does your team have a sponsor? Uh, cold Avenger. They make the, uh, the cold weather gear masks. The owner of the company is our captain.
0: Whoa, okay. Yeah. So put enough money down for Missoula Co-Rec Hockey, and you can not only sponsor a team, but be the captain?
1: I'm just saying, there's still time
0: for the Co-Man Event podcast to field a team for next winter. Oh God, what, is, what does it cost? Because I'm legitimately interested in that. <laughs> I can look into it for okay, you. Okay, let's find out. Speaking of which, new sponsor alert... This week, the episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by MMA Pack, a great new subscription box service uniquely targeted toward fighters and fight fans. You know, these subscription boxes are all the rage right now, and it's super cool to see that there's finally one just for people who train in and support MMA. Ben, tell the kids at home how this stuff works. Well, Chad, it's pretty and easy. You just go to MMAPack.com
1: to sign up, and then for the low price of $39 a pop, They'll start sending you a box full of around 100 bucks worth of MMA clothes, gear, supplements, and accessories in the mail every single month. They send out big brands like uh, Roots of Fight and Fuji, but also hit you up with smaller, independent
0: brands, so people who subscribe get unique and high-quality gear for training and for everyday life. Of course, that's not all. I just started emailing back and forth with our, our guy Jeremy, who runs the company, and he seems like a cool dude right now. As we speak MMA Pack is offering a pretty sweet introductory offer exclusively for our listeners. Just go to the website mmapac.com, that's P A C K right now to check out the particulars and enter the promo code co main event all one word to save 20% off your first pack. After that, a box full of great MMA gear and other stuff will start arriving right at your doorstep every single month. It's seriously that easy. So big ups to Jeremy and MMAPack.com. They'll be with us as the new sponsor of the CME for at least the next few weeks. And we encourage all y'all to get out there and give MMAPack.com a try. Uh, It looks like a pretty cool deal. Again, that's MMAPack.com, P-A-C in the word pack. Got any subscriptions, Ben? Any subscription services coming to the house?
1: You know I do the Trunk Club, as I know you, sure. you've yeah, done yeah. the Trunk Club. I also do. The is trunk that a club. Trunk Club shirt you're wearing right no, now? No, this
0: is a shirt I got from my mother-in-law for Christmas.
1: Well, that explains why it looks so dapper. That's a nice shirt. I know you didn't pick that out yourself.
0: That's it, though. Trunk Club. That's all you got. That's all I got. I got my wife a subscription for uh, Christmas, where she gets a, a novel every month with uh, some other like hot chocolate and/or coffee. It's huh. called the Cozy Reader Club. How about that? So far, the novels seem like they kind of suck, but uh,
1: the hot chocolate works. Everything else is good. I used to do a wine uh, thing, and the best part about it was the incredibly detailed paragraphs that they would send with the wine that just spun a yarn all in themselves. And uh, so, yeah,
0: describing wine. It's like a
1: yeah, and so you'd big, be sitting like there genre be like, unto itself. Almost. Yeah, no, I'm getting hints of uh, hickory bark
0: and uh, you know chocolate. Sure, sure, I am. So go ahead and check out MMAPack.com. We're pleased to have them with us as our new sponsor. We've also got music again this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, on Twitter at The Fifth Element, or on SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know by now, that's the letter A in The Fifth Element. But you knew that. That's right. Three rounds as usual this week in the Come Event podcast. In round number one, just my personal preference, guys. But if I'm ever in serious physical peril, please just take me to the hospital before calling my boss to see if it's okay. Thanks. In round number two, maybe people expect this sort of thing from Tyron Woodley, but a few more performances like this from Stephen the Wonder Man Thompson, and he's going to get his ass busted back down to Wonder Boy. And in round number three... Finally, the fight we've all been waiting for. Vitor Belfort versus Kelvin Gastelum. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Max Sawyer. He writes, all right, guys, this week has been sad, really sad. However, one of the most interesting things that happened to uh, that I happened to see was that even though Mark Hunt's head was demolished. It seems he got paid well for it, $750,000 in disclosed pay. Am I missing something? Has he always gotten paid this month in the mi- in the middle of a civil suit? Seems weird to me. Please discuss. Uh, so Ben, this was, uh, I'm going to come out and wager a weird week to be Mark Hunt. Yeah. <laughs> to uh, show up to fight at UFC 209 in the midst of uh, a pretty strongly worded civil complaint against the UFC and Brock Lesnar that I believe, among other things, accuses them of racketeering. That's right. Which is kind of a big deal. And uh, I believe, quoting from the the uh, the legal document, it says he wants them to, quote-unquote, disgorge their ill-gotten profits yeah. from his fight against That's Brock Lesnar at UFC 200. Uh, during the, And he also went on the MMA Fortnite with Ariel Helwani recently and said he would not have taken this fight with Alistair Overeem. In fact, that he turned down several other fights until the UFC basically said they were going to uh, uh, charge him with breach of contract, drop him from his UFC deal, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so he does, in fact, show up to fight Alistair Overeem on the curtain jerker of UFC 209. Those two guys went out there, kind of duffed their way through about 11 minutes of this fight uh, in true heavyweight fashion between the two guys whose who's combined age is like 80. Uh, and then Alistair Overeem did Alistair Overeem stuff to Mark Hunt's face, knocked him out cold, which was legitimately impressive. Uh, to see from Alistair Overeem, but Mark Hunt leaves the Octagon before any kind of interview with even Alistair Overeem could happen, and now his future with the UFC is kind of in doubt, wouldn't you say?
1: Well, a lot of things are going to be in doubt from here on out, if you're Mark Hunt, just at his age and where his career has gone recently, Uh, but it is interesting that Max Sawyer brings up that he got paid a disclosed $750,000 for this fight, no win bonus, I believe, it was just that flat fee. Uh, and if you remember, for UFC 200 to fight Brock, Les- Brock Lesnar, I believe he got a disclosed payout of 700000 So he went up $50,000 uh, from that fight. I don't know if that was uh, something that happens if you end up in a no contest uh, due to uh, drug test-related You're overturnings. Cl-
0: clomiphene.
1: Yeah. And then maybe you get a, a slight bump in pay. And I went and I kind of looked to figure out, like, you know, how has the, the pay of Mark Hunt risen over the years – it's hard to tell since he spent the last few years fighting a bunch in Australia, where we don't get payout numbers, and Japan, uh, when the UFC would go back there, which obviously you're not going to get payout numbers from. Um, the last one I could find was when he fought in Las Vegas. Um, and, you know, and that was not super recently. Uh, and I think he got like 160 grand or something. Uh, and this is for, let's see, where is it here? Uh, yeah, this is for the uh UFC 160 fight with uh, Junior dos Santos um and that was 2013 so that was a good little while ago but you look at his record since then and it hasn't been super remarkable i mean he's had like really memorable fights he had that draw with uh, Bigfoot Silva uh that was one of the greatest fights anybody ever seen and then we had to all feel weird about it when uh, Bigfoot had the testosterone issue after that uh knocked out Roy Nelson in Japan uh lost to Forres Verdoom and the Stepe uh, beat Bigfoot in the rematch, knocked out Frank Mir, then the fight with with Brock Lesnar. So it wasn't like he was lighting the world on fire and got his contract money up. Um, but maybe the UFC was one way or another brought to an appreciation of what
0: Mark Hunt brings to the table. Yeah, I guess it's possible. It's really like weird and difficult to imagine them going in for a contract renegotiation right now, right? Like it doesn't seem like the kind of thing the UFC would do would be like, well, Mark, if you don't take this fight, we're going to charge you with breach of contract, but we will give you a nice raise if you do take it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not really privy to what Mark Hunt gets paid. Like, a lot of these aging heavyweights make a pretty penny because, first of all, there's only, like, four of them on the UFC roster. And, second, like, uh, you know, they're, they're generally at least passable draws. People like to see the big guys go out there and, and slang the heavy leather back and forth. Remember the thing with Alistair Overeem when he got signed – uh, When he finally came to the UFC back in 2011 was like they paid him a shitload of money because they thought Alistair Overeem is going to come in and take the world by storm. And then he does beat Brock at UFC 141 and, of course, then tests positive while he's kind of waiting for his title shot against, I believe, Junior Dos Santos at the time. Well, yeah. And
1: yeah, I think he you're tested right about positive
0: that. and then turned around after that suspension and, and uh, uh, went one in three. And at that point, we were like, oh, my God, Alistair Overeem not worth the money. Uh, so, like these these guys, especially the veterans who've been around for a while, uh, they make a they make a surprising amount of money at the at the heavyweight level.
1: Well, and Mark Hunt, his new contract, the contract he's on now, I believe he got in 2016, um, and I think it was before. I think it was actually between when he was on that two fight win streak, maybe between uh, when he beat Bigfoot and then Frank Mir, and before I think it was probably the spring. You know, before uh, fighting at UFC 200, but even then it seemed like the Mark Hunt rise we had seen as high as it was going to go, he had that opportunity to kind of become like an interim uh, heavyweight champion against Fabricio Verdum, didn't happen, he lost the next fight against Stipe in which he was just kind of taken down and abused for uh, most of that fight, and so that they would still be willing to then pay him, you know, give him a new contract, and I think it was supposed to be a you know, multi-fight contract that... Um, to, to keep him at that point, I think shows you what the UFC even then was kind of realizing, like, okay, a heavyweight slugger who makes sure somebody's going to get knocked out, that is the kind of dude that we need. Uh, and at least the kind of dude that we don't want to have out there walking around fighting for somebody else. Um, so it kind of tells you a little bit about uh, the... At least their appreciation of of Mark Hunt.
0: Yeah, and still I think Mark Hunt, if he if he wanted to continue fighting, would be able to find a home as long as he wanted to do it, right? Even if it's not in the UFC, you'd think he would show up in Bellator and or Ryzen or something like that, which is, you know, he seems like the kind of guy that even if he's having these contract negotiation and legal issues with the ufc seems like the kind of guy that they would want to keep around if for no other reason than to keep him from showing up in those other organizations where even though he's been you know on somewhat hard times as of late would still be like a good bargaining chip to show up over in bellator mark hunt probably knocks a shitload of dudes out over in bellator
1: you want to see a mark hunt uh, Fedor rematch you don't think you do but maybe you do
0: uh, before we move on, I do want to bring up Alistair Overeem quickly. He kind of gets himself right back in the mix, I guess, with this win over Mark Hunt at UFC 209. Uh, the weird thing about Alistair Overeem, uh, do you think if he had never turned himself into the ream, right? If he had never become this like 280-pound monster that made Brock Lesnar look small at the press conference uh, when they showed up for that, w- how do you think we would view him now? Because like, he's about to turn 37 here in a couple months. I have a feeling if he had never, uh, for lack of a better terms, uh, Barry bonds it in a way like that. We would look at over him and be like, wow, this guy looks good at 37 years old. But now, because he did have that stretch where he just seemed like he was almost a different species of animal where he would just murder you immediately. Uh, now we have this weird, like, uh, drama when he fights where, like, it seems at any moment he could either win or lose, like, in the, in the, at the snap of a fingers. Uh, so I just wonder if he had not had that dalliance where he went like 10-0 but was also clearly, uh, putting on some different kind of gear, uh, what we would think of him. Because that kind of overshadows everything that he's done since then.
1: Yeah, and it makes you wonder about what he may be up to now. Like, it's always going to be a question that he, that follows him around. You know, like you, I, I appreciate the drama of an Alistair Overeem fight and that he seems like he could be winning on the verge of ending the fight and he could still get knocked out at any time, especially against a guy like Mark Hunt. So I was a little surprised when he took a good shot or two here in this one. One time, looked a little wobbled and then uh, regained his bearings and came back hard on Mark Hunt. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if that's the kind of thing that you fix or and especially if it's the kind of thing that you fix with age. Um, but an Alistair Overeem who could stop just kind of getting suddenly knocked out could
0: be a problem yeah, for a could. whole lot of people. He, he was he was competitive in that fight against Steve Miocic until uh, I believe he got knocked out right at the end of round one. But it was a it was a good ass fight. So if they end up doing that again, I won't be surprised. Uh, next question this week comes to us from the Cheeseburger wall. He writes: Can we take a second to appreciate the awesomeness that is Groovy Lando Venata? In his first three UFC appearances, he's given us a fight of the year contender versus the number one contender, a knockout of the year versus a savvy vet, and a fight of the night versus another future star. Sure, he's one and two in the UFC, and his hype train will slow down a bit after the latest loss, uh, but he's always must-see TV. Thoughts on Venata versus Tamer, uh, their ceilings in the UFC, and what they do next for both guys. This was clearly the fight of the night, the lightweight co-main event. Uh, as it turned out after we had to reshuffle this thing because of Habib Nurmagomedov getting pulled off the card. Uh, Lando Venata out there against uh, David or Tamer. Is it David Tamer? I think it's Tamer. Tamer. Uh, He ends up beating uh, Groovy Lando by unanimous decision. 30-27 across the board, which I thought was a little bit harsh uh, because it was a competitive fight. But, yeah, I I agree with the cheeseburger walrus here. I think... Um, uh, especially for David Tamer, this is a performance that makes him seem like a guy that you want to continue to watch at the lightweight division and Lando Venata, even though, uh, now that we've seen him three times, maybe the profile that's starting to emerge is not necessarily the world beater that we thought he could be when he showed up to fight, uh, Tony Ferguson on short notice, but he's still, goddammit it, a guy that you want to watch win, lose or draw.
1: Yeah. And one thing that we should remind ourselves of is that when he showed up in the UFC and fought Tony Ferguson, that was his ninth professional fight. So maybe let's not make up our minds, Jeff or feel like we have to say exactly right. what he's capable of. Yeah, good point. Um, he's 9-2 and two now. The one thing I worry about is that already you can kind of see that he jumped into the UFC at a really high level because of the situation that right. necessitated it when he jumped in against Tony Ferguson. Then he gets to kind of come back down a few rungs and fight John McDessie, and he has that awesome you know, highlight reel wheel kick knockout in the first round. And then goes back up in competition against a guy like David Tamer, who, just as far as if you're going to stand there and strike with that guy, you know, he's got a ton of experience in that. Good luck. And it kind of feels like it leaves Lando Venata in a weird spot because if you put him back down towards, you know, somebody who experience wise, it seems like they're on paper more of a uh, competitive matchup. um, And then he goes out and he, he knocks that person out, then. You're just going to want to throw him right back in the deep end there again. It seems like they're just not giving him any middle ground. There's no real chance for him to work his way up because of where he started and how well he did, even in defeat. Now, you know, you're one and two in the UFC, which is not a great mark. And yet, people know your name. People want to see you fight. You clearly got a whole lot of skills. And yet, if the UFC had to go to the negotiating table with you anytime soon, you know they're going to say, hey, man, you're one and two. What do you really want from us?
0: Yeah, and I think you're right. That can be a tough spot for a guy to go to the UFC when he's just eight and and immediately jump in there and and look as good as he did against Tony Ferguson in July of last year. Uh because, you know, almost like a guy who wins the ultimate fighter like really early in his career, now you've got a high profile guy, you gotta kinda of figure out what to do with him. Um I don't know that it's going to be a problem for Lando Venata. I think he's going to continue to, uh, you know, progress, continue to get better, uh, continue to beat most of the people that he's matched up with. If they, uh, if they handle his career correctly from like a negotiating standpoint, I think you're right. It's, uh, it puts him in kind of a weird situation, yet at the same time, in the new world of the UFC, even if you're trying to negotiate in what is the most competitive division in all of mixed martial arts at 155 pounds, uh, you're still a guy people want to see. And it seems like that is what matters right now in this sport more than almost anything else. So I think that that puts him, you know, I think it puts him, frankly, for all of the the problems that it could cause him, in a very enviable position for Uh, a guy who's nine and two as a lightweight uh, and is just 24 years old. Like probably a lot of 24 year old lightweights that would gladly trade places with him, even though he's coming off this loss and is now, you know, has a losing record in the UFC. True. Next question this week comes from Ross Eglio. He writes, I was excited to see super Bosnian prospect Mursad Bektik take another step up in competition on Saturday night. And he looked absolutely phenomenal except for that part at the end where he got head kicked and folded up like a chase lounge. Horrible tattoo with, uh, withstanding, you got to hand it to Darren, the Damaged Elkins. Uh, that is some true warrior spirit right there. So I got to ask, do you guys remember ever seeing a more dramatic comeback than that? As Joe Rogan said, that was some primal stuff right there. And how did this fight, which was destined for greatness, not get promoted to the main card over a couple ladies from Fight Pass who most of us never heard of? Please spit the truth. Uh, just in terms of... of Pure comebacks, I'm not sure that I can remember one where the fight kind of turned on a dime and was more impressive than, than Darren Elkins uh, knocking out Mursad Bektik with like a minute and 40 seconds left uh, in the final round after he had gotten just worn around like a hat for I can. most of the previous uh, fight. I
1: can, I can give you one example that I can remember that is as shocking if not more shocking.
0: Okay, what is it?
1: Todd Duffy, Mike Russo. Do you remember that one? Todd Duffy is just beating the brakes off Mike Russo uh, for, you know, I think it's well into the third round, midway through the third round, maybe um, just seems like he can do absolutely anything he wants to him. Then Russo lands like one big punch, knocks out Todd Duffy out of nowhere.
0: Okay. Yeah. I must've forgot about that because Todd Duffy. I mean, w- at least
1: with this one. You're going to go look it up afterwards. You're going to be like, damn no, it. I vaguely, that, I vaguely remember it ben happening. That was right.
0: Uh, but that was kind of the story of Todd Duffy for a while, right? He would go and up there. And kind up, of the story of Mike Russo. And look pretty good and then uh, end up getting knocked out. The reason that I would give the nod to Darren Elkins versus Mirsad Bektik is that Bektik was, I believe, the longest or the, 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 the biggest favorite yeah, like on six this to one. card. And yeah. Elkins was the biggest underdog coming in. Uh, so for Elkins to win this fight in dramatic fashion at the end of it, uh, to me, it would take precedence over a couple of middling heavyweights doing heavyweight stuff. Uh, but this, and like, this is a, this doesn't kill Mursad Bektik's uh, upward trajectory. I think in the featherweight division, he's still a big time prospect. And for almost this entire fight, you saw why, uh, but man, what a feel good moment for Darren Elkins. I feel like even if you're interested in up and coming guys and you're kind of sad to see Bektik get knocked out like this, uh, the 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 joy of Darren Elkins kind of has to take precedence
1: yeah, when you could just see it written all over his face, you know if you could see it through all the blood all over his face because it was a it was feel bad moments many many feel bad moments right up leading up until that feel good and you could kind of see Mirsad Becknick slowing down a little bit that 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 style was taking its toll on him, uh and then it seemed like it was as much exhaustion as anything that opened the door for Darren Elkins there, but that that moment when you see him walk off after he realizes that he has pulled off that comeback and it seems like even he kind of can't believe it. Uh, you know, that is the kind of stuff that reminds you that unexpected moments like that are part of what m- keep, keep you're coming back to this sport despite all the other incredible bullshit that goes on.
0: Yeah. Uh, and that first round was brutal. Like the second and third rounds were a little bit more competitive, but uh, Darren Elkins gets beat up about as bad as you can see a guy get beat up without getting stopped in that first round. Uh, Bechtick had the crucifix on him, just landed some nasty elbows and nasty punches on, from the ground. Once again, serving up a good reminder that you are dealing with different kinds of dudes in there than from like, uh, the regular guys that you just know in this world. Cause Darren Elkins gets a cut that Joe Rogan described as a quote unquote coin purse on the side of his head. Uh, and, you know, it was one of those ones that when they show it on TV and the crowd sees it, the crowd gasps loud enough for the fighter to know, like, oh, I'm cut pretty bad. And you can see before he goes out to the second round, he kind of touches touches it with Don't his finger. Yeah, Don't yeah, exactly, touch it. Yeah, exactly, right? But, like, uh, I'm thinking I get a bloody nose and I'm like, all right, the, this was fun, but let's call Let's, I'm done. Let's, I need to go in the bathroom and stick toilet paper up my nose. These dudes are out there, like, with a second smile gashed in the side of his face. <laughs> and he's kind of, like, in the corner. We talked about this before we started recording, but when Darren Elkins' corner was like, well, this is the kind of fight we knew it was going to be, Darren. And Darren Elkins is kind of like, yep, it's not going well, but kind of expected I was going to get thumped on like this, at least for a while. That just takes a different mindset.
1: You know what I always wonder with a fight like this is, where's the line between this made you better and this took something from you that you will never be able to regain? Because on one sense, like... Now you know you can do this; you know what kind of toughness and resolve you have. You know that you can take a tremendous beating and you can still come back, and that's psychologically that's got to be kind of buoying for you uh, to, to know that you have that in you to, to have been pushed that far and to still found it and find it in yourself to come back and win. However, you're also going to walk away with a ton of scar tissue in your face. You took just a tremendous beating about the head and brain area. There's got to be some point where what you gain psychologically is outweighed by the physical toll that something like that took.
0: Yeah, and like Darren Elkins, whose nickname is The Damage, and he has that tattoo on his chest where it looks like, or at least it's supposed to look like, someone has cut that into his chest. Uh, possibly against his will. Yeah, uh, and you could I felt like as he was kind of emotional in the post-fight interview, as well he should have been. This was a huge win for him uh, he described it as quote, probably my biggest comeback win ever. Yeah. No shit, dude. Like it totally was, but like, you could kind of see it on his face. I felt when Rogan says, we know about your durability, et cetera, et cetera. You could kind of see it on Darren Elgin's face. Like I wish it didn't have to be that way, but like at this point I know I'm that guy. So I guess that's where we're at. Uh, but again, good win for that guy. You got to feel good for him, especially since he's they mentioned on the broadcast that he's a member of local pipe fitters union, like five five 579 in, in Portage, Indiana, where he's from, which uh, hard not to like a guy like that. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from El Guapo. So Boss Rutin, I assume, has contacted the co-main event podcast with his, his pressing questions about the mixed martial arts world. He writes, UFC 209 was an interesting card. <coughs> Excuse me. Excitement from top to bottom to almost the top. Uh, beyond the groovy one losing to an impressive, to an impressive, and as of fight time, no Wikipedia having upstart, and beyond the snooze fest of a main event, I was most impressive, with sneaky old man Dan Kelly fighting like a rogue and beating Sugar Rashad Evans, Evan didn't look too bad, but a lot of the completely reasonable and not at all jumping to conclusion ass motherfuckers on the internet say he's done, I respect your opinion slightly more than those idiots, so I gotta ask, Where do you think sugar goes from here? Should he call it quits? Or did we just uh, all underestimate how effective fighting like a scoundrel is in the octagon? Uh, (laughs) Scoundrel and a rogue? Exactly. Speaking of dudes that it's impossible not to like, Ben, 39-year-old Dan Kelly with his pile of trash knee. Getting his knee all taped up. Keeps going out there and beating dudes in the UFC. That he's probably supposed to lose two. Including Rashad Evans at UFC 209. Wins the split decision against Rashad Evans. But I didn't even think it was that close. Uh, Dan Kelly has won four in a row now. And overall is six and one in the UFC middleweight division. Not too shabby for a dude that's going to turn 40 later this year. And looks like you showed up to take his daughter to the prom. And he was like, okay, but you got to fight me for 15 minutes first. If you were playing pickup basketball...
1: So you're down there at the Y. You're playing some pickup basketball on your lunch hour. Dan Kelly comes rolling in there, got his knee all taped up all to hell. You know, he's doing that old man walk, getting on the court. You can't tell him. You look at him and you go, all right, like he might have a good outside jumper or something. I bet he plays, I, I bet he plays tight defense. I'll bet that you get down there in the paint with Dan Kelly and he's going to put an elbow in your ribs. But we're, we're running the court up and down. I, I don't sweat this guy. Uh, And I feel like that's kind of exactly what his opponents must be thinking when they see him, even at this point, because you just, even when you watch him, you know, you watch his striking exchanges, you watch him on tape. It doesn't seem like he ought to be able to consistently land punches on these guys. He doesn't seem super fast, super slick, anything like that. And yet he does. He keeps doing it. And I kept wondering, you know, you say that you didn't even think it was that close. I thought it was a pretty close fight. I would not have been surprised to see Rashad Evans walk away with that decision. And I think one of the things that really helps a guy like Dan Kelly in close decisions is that – you he no sells every single thing you throw at him like you hit him with a really good shot Rashad Evans hit him with a couple good uppercuts that he really caught him leaning into but there's just no reaction from him. He gives you no indication that anything you did may have hurt him. And I think that that does impact the judges, that they're trying to look at damage and see how significant the blows were. You know, he's landed that left, that left hand on Rashad Evans' jaw, and it's turning his whole head sideways. You could tell, all right, like, he's scoring with that. And then when Rashad Evans comes back and lands on him, just nothing. It's like he's just punching into the void.
0: If you were going to like punch into a computer to create a fighter that Chad Dundas would be a mark for uh Dan <laughs> Kelly might very well come out because Got the accent. he's old. He practices a traditional martial art like judo. He doesn't look like he's going to beat you. Basically he's one step away from wearing a full body brace out to the cage. And then he comes out there and he does shit like punches you in the face and scoops your ankle with his foot. So you can't back up away from him over and over again. I love it. Uh, I also like Rashad Evans an awful lot though, and he looked like a million bucks at the weigh-in. Uh looked like a dude who should have been fighting at middleweight a long time ago. And if you've ever seen Rashad Evans in person, I think it's easier to to know that, to come to that conclusion, because Rashad Evans is not a big dude, especially as compared to some of the just gigantic individuals at light heavyweight. You see John Jones or uh, you know, even somebody like Ryan Bader or Forrest Griffin. You see those dudes and you see Rashad Evans in person. You're like, those guys are not in the same weight class. So I feel you, like... R- you can see some
1: middleweights and you'll think that with Rashad Evans. Right, know? yeah.
0: I think Rashad Evans should have been down here at 185 a long time ago. I know we're all falling all over ourselves to uh, kind of write the guy's obituary after this loss to Dan Kelly. I would like to see him get at least one more fight at 185 before we start, you know, writing him off. Because as the, the emailer said, Dan Kelly is a sneaky fighter and he's a southpaw. And he just does a lot of weird stuff in there. This is Rashad Evans' first time down at one eighty-five. Uh, you know, I don't think you can quite write him off just because of the weird matchup and the like his first time at middleweight. I would like to see him get another opportunity to see what he can do at that weight. Me too. And I,
1: I do think that in a lot of ways, uh Dan Kelly is the exact kind of guy that gives Rashad Evans problems, and that keeps him uh, like you saw when he fought uh, Little Nog, and he gets kind of in this mode where he just can't seem to go completely on offense. And when he does, he's a scary dude. And when he gets caught like playing this kind of uh, mid-range game with some of these guys, uh, then that's when uh, he tends to have some of these more lackluster performances. But yeah, I'll be interested to see what he can do. I don't think he's done by any means.
0: We got a ton of good emails this week. I wish we could just keep going and answer them all, but we got a lot of stuff we want to talk about uh for the rest of the show. So that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do that. You go to the website co com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can check out the uh, the uh, Breakfast of Champions newsletter, sign yourself up for that. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on all the news and notes that we miss on Tuesdays through Fridays, all the days that we're not recording the podcast. News always breaks. Stuff always happens. People always get pulled from the goddamn pay-per-view card. It comes out early Friday morning. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. is just never safe is it there's never a moment in this sport where you can just relax and put your feet up because you know what's coming on saturday night i'd like to say that's part of the beauty of it but that's not true when did we find this out thursday morning when they're doing the weigh-ins for ufc 209 friday morning was it friday morning yeah friday morning so even later than i was gonna give it credit for Habib Nurmagomedov gets pulled out of his interim lightweight title fight against Tony Ferguson, which was to be the co-main event of UFC 209, uh, owing to a difficult weight cut that uh, ultimately put him in the hospital and prevented him from fighting on Saturday night. A million different places that we could go with this discussion because there's a lot of stuff at issue here, including but not limited to weight cuts and uh the UFC's response to that weight cut. Let's talk first just a little bit about Habib Nurmagomedov because clearly there's so much stuff to like about this guy. Uh, it's kind of been love at first sight. I feel like a little bit with the MMA hardcore fans, uh, in seeing him come to the Octagon, uh, back in 2012 and put together this undefeated streak, uh, from the like ice cold attitude to the somewhat reckless striking and, and, uh, heavy top control grappling style to like uh, the rad hat that he will don during ceremonial weigh-ins just to the overarching idea that this could be a guy who could win the title in this division. uh, I think really made him and continue to make him a popular character in this division, but this feels almost like a significant, I don't want to say turning point, but like a significant signpost in the Habib Nurmagomedov story and you don't want to write the guy off because for all I know, he could come back. They could still have this fight with Tony Ferguson. He could win it. He could be the interim champ. He could end up fighting Conor McGregor. This all could be water under the bridge in like six months. But at this point, you see that the guys fought three times since the end of 2013. All of them wins. Uh, but it feels uncertain at this point, To at least to me that this guy will go on being a top contender at lightweight or a guy that has like a tremendous future in this weight class, especially, you know, I don't know how much stock you want to put in the stuff that his dad says. Uh, but he came out today. Habib Nurmagomedov's dad came out and said he'll be retired by 30. Uh, and he's 28 right now. So like just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty, I would say around this guy. What, what, where, how are you feeling about, the legend of Habib Nur- Nurmagomedov and, and where he stands at 155 pounds right now. The one thing that makes me
1: back off the the uncertainty or back off the, the feeling that we have crossed some kind of uh, threshold as far as our being able to trust that he'll show up on fight night is that at least this one is a different kind of thing than what we've seen. This one, like a kind of botched weight cut or you know whatever went wrong in the weight cut to where you have to go to the hospital, clearly... That's not just like showing up a couple of pounds heavy. That's, you know, something something went very, very wrong there. And that at least is different than, you know, breaking your hand in training or, or messing up your knee in training and having to keep pull out of, uh, pulling out of fights due to injury, you know, weeks beforehand. That, you know, if it had been the same thing that we've been seeing from him uh, yet again, then I might say like, okay, there's clearly, you know, he's he's either pulling out too easily, or he is uh, not durable enough, or he's not training smart enough, something like that. But since this was something uh, of a completely different nature, I'm inclined to give him a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt, but it also does, like if you want to go with the uh, the narrative that he is not taking care of his body the right way, this definitely fits into that. Because whatever you did wrong, whether you showed up too heavy or you tried to cut uh, in too extreme a fashion. whatever. If you're going to the hospital the night before the weigh-ins, you screwed up somehow. Uh, and you're ultimately the only one who can take responsibility for that at the end of the day. I'm still willing, you know, if you go ahead and you book him another fight, another high-profile, lightweight fight, I'm not going to sit here and act like I won't be excited to see that shit, because I will. Um, I do feel, though, that the uh, the Nurmi fergie pairing has reached a point where who can trust it now? Yeah. If you
0: book it again,
1: I can't take it seriously until they are in the cage staring at each other.
0: These dudes got to stop making Conor McGregor look like a goddamn prophet <laughs> yes, as, a, as a side topic. <laughs> but one of the things that gives me pause about Nurmagomedov's future in the UFC uh, you know his relationship with the UFC, notwithstanding, I think he is a, a promotable guy. I think you could make a, you know, use him to sell your pay-per-view events just just because of how he acts. But like WMI WME IMG has seemed, uh, or is developing this this uh profile, I guess you would say, at least from the outside looking in, as being maybe not totally into the foreign guys as as much. And that's we kind of jump into conclusions to say that, but like you know, for a while Mika Sirkonov, Misha Sirkinov was in and out of the UFC, and now apparently back uh, in the UFC. You had uh, Nikita Krilov, Nikki Thrills. Nikki Thrills. Uh, did he resign or is he gone? He's gone. Right? I mean, he's gone. He's, he's going to go fight somewhere Russia. in Russia. So one of the things that makes me wonder about Habib Nurmagomedov is if there's an infinite number of Russian promotions, which there seems to be, and they're willing to pay <laughs> the guy a good amount of money. At some point, if his relationship with the UFC goes south, does he just say, you know what, I'll stay home and fight. It'll be easier that way. Uh, And is the UFC willing to lay out enough money to keep a guy like that? So like I said, there's a lot of ins and outs. There's a lot of different ways you can look at this. What do you make of, I'm going to say old school Dana White showing his face again in the UFC for a while now? The UFC president has kept a somewhat low profile, and I feel like in a smattering of headlines, Recently, uh, Dana White has reverted to, to the old school ways, uh, blaming Habib Nurmagomedov's team uh, for not calling the UFC first before taking him to the hospital.
1: Which they referred to as going rogue. He went rogue by going to the damn hospital.
0: There were reports, I guess Tony Ferguson might have said this, that they offered him a replacement fight, I think against Michael Johnson. Yes. But he turned it down because they wanted to lower his pay. Uh, And then I think you had one that at the Michael Bisping, George St. Pierre press conference, Dana White said, if you're not a pay-per-view star, then you should shut up and fight. Uh, So uh, going old school on us here a little bit.
1: And I think if you, you know, you mentioned how he seemed to not be doing that for a while, wasn't even doing those media scrums. And now he's showing up a little more. We're seeing him more. And, you know, when he shows up and starts talking, this kind of stuff eventually happens. I think you can draw a direct line from the down year the UFC is having so far and the absence of some of the top uh, stars to Dana White having to get out there and do a little bit more press because you see when he first started doing the scrum again was for the, the last Ronda Rousey pay-per-view where she was not doing any media and he stepped in there to do it because he can always fill that role. He's always somebody that people want to talk to and he's always, you know, he can stand there in those media scrums and it's like, you can just see the headlines taking shape as he's talking. So I think that there's a, a connection between not having Ronda Rousey, Conor McGregor and John Jones around and having Dana White around more But I don't know who let him go on TV and say something like, you know, he went rogue when they went to the hospital. Because, you know, the the reports that I saw, they were saying he, uh, Nurmagomedov on Thursday night during his weight cut had a sharp pain in his liver. And now, I don't know Nurmagomedov personally. I got an idea about the guy's kind of mental toughness from what we've seen of him so far in his career. I got to imagine it's going to be kind of severe for him to say, I have a sharp pain in my liver. I need to go to the hospital now. Yeah. And for you as the promoter, like a fight promoter in Las Vegas to be sitting there and saying, well, what that guy should have done is let us bring the house doctor in. Uh, you know, not, don't go to a hospital for God's sakes, man. What's wrong with you? Give him a glass
0: of orange juice, tell him he's
1: fine. (laughs) Let us get our doctor up into the hotel room, walking up in there with his little mysterious leather bag, uh, gonna go in your room and he'll fix everything and then the fight can still stay together because that makes you look terrible. It makes you look like you are willing to, you know, put the guy's health at risk possibly, um, just by telling him like, oh, hey, no, we'll, we'll take care of it as long as we can keep the fight together. It, it feeds back into some of the, like, worst suspicions that people have about fight promoters just in general. And some of the stuff that we've seen from the UFC when in the past, when it came to issues like drug testing, which was that, Hey, as long as the UFC can get the fight out of you, they don't care. They don't care what the issues are that come up afterwards. That's all your problem. They need to get you in there on fight night so they can collect the pay-per-view money. And then after that, Hey, you and your body are your own problem. And that feeds right into that stuff. The idea that you would go out there on TV and volunteer this stuff is just baffling to me.
0: Yeah, the way I imagine it, the UFC doctor is wearing a paisley shirt unbuttoned about to his navel, and he's probably (laughs) at a blackjack table somewhere when a beautiful woman comes up and whispers something in his ear. Or a beeper
1: goes off. I imagine an old school beeper on his hip, and he's like, "Uh uh-oh,
0: 911. Yeah, and he he looks at the blackjack dealer and says, Francis, I'll be back. And he just takes off. You know what I keep coming back to in the decision to take Khabib Nurmagomedov to the hospital? And obviously, we don't know who was with him at the time. Uh, but we know he comes from AKA a, a camp that you know, rightly or wrongly, has taken some criticism for um, how hard they train and having guys pull out of fights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But assuming that there was AKA people there cutting weight with Habib Nurmagomedov, and to think how long a couple of dudes like Crazy Bob Cook and Javier Mendez have been in the fight game and the shit they must have seen up to this point—if it's me. And a dude named Crazy Bob Cook says I need to go to the hospital. Take me to the fucking hospital (laughs) immediately.
1: Well, and I don't know what the what you think the upside is of going out there and trying to put this on them is going to be for you if you're like if because it's not going to sell you more pay per views. It's not like people are going to be like, oh, so it was uh, Nurmagomedov's fault that the the fight I wanted most to see this weekend is off. Okay, well now I'm in. Like you're the best case scenario is you convince. All your fans that this guy who you were hoping is going to be you know, one of your future stars, who was one of the main reasons people were going to pay the 60 bucks on Saturday night, you've just convinced us that like he's bullshit. How does that help you? That does not help you at all. Uh, and it just raises so many troubling questions about how you would like to do this business if you could have it your way. Uh, there's just, there's no reason for you to go out there and do that at all. But I think we should, we we talked enough about that. One thing we should squeeze in here before we move on is where this leaves your guy, Tony Ferguson, you know, he's sitting around the sunglasses indoors. They can hide your sadness to some extent, but you know, this has got to be a tremendous bummer for him, man.
0: Yeah. Uh, he got his show money though. Right. He got he out did. there, stepped on the scale, got paid a little bit. Um, the trouble is like, I think what happened to Tim Kennedy before his last fight you're one of these athletes, you peak for this fight, you get ready on fight week, you cut all the weight and then your fight gets canceled. Cause the other guy doesn't uh, do what he said he was going to do. It's not like, I don't feel like you can turn around and come back two weeks later. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's almost like you, you peaked in your marathon training and you were ready to do the marathon and they called it off. Like you kind of got to take some time. I feel to go back, put it all back together again. And then athletically take another, uh, run at, at getting ready to fight. If you don't want to come out and, and be flat and not ready to go. And for a guy like Tony Ferguson, that's won, you know, seven dozen fights in a row or whatever it is. Like you kind of got to guard that. Cause that's what you got going for yourself right now. So it would have been a big risk for him to take Michael Johnson, uh, and for less money and for less
1: <laughs> oh, money, What are you man. crazy?
0: Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to, to Tony Ferguson, but, uh, I, you know, hopefully he'll make a good choice and come back and, and, uh, have a good fight against another top contender and, and we'll go from there.
1: Man, even if I was considering taking that fight, the minute you offer me less money, and not, only, not just even like financially, I'm just like insulted
0: you, on principle. They should be offering you more money, right? Exactly. Like, that's that's the, how it should work.
1: The analogy I made when we, Danny Downs and I were talking about this in Trading Shots is it's like if your friend said like, hey, I need a ride to the airport and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll do him a favor. I'll give him a ride to the airport. And he's like, well, you can give me a ride to the airport, but only if you carry my bags too. And you're like, wait a minute. I'm the one doing you a favor. I'm I'm the one agreeing to step in here on a, a higher risk, lower profile fight. I did everything I said I was going to do. Now you want me to do you a favor. I say yes, and you say, and we're going to cut your pay for it. That, I mean, just on principle, you say no, just yeah. because you don't want to be treated like that.
0: All right, but well, we digress. Let's do are you fucking kidding me, and then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad— uh You may have seen this. We had This was in USA Today. We had it on MMA Junkie
1: today. Uh, A little something about Nate Diaz, who you know was down uh, hanging out in the cannabis shops uh, in Las Vegas around UFC 209 because you can't have a UFC 209 and not expect somebody from the 209 to show up. That's just nonsense right there. Uh, And Nate Diaz, of course, as he is known to do, got started talking about how he feels he is underutilized, underpromoted by the UFC, disrespected by the UFC. And he mentioned... I don't know if you remember this, but the the movie Fist Fight with Ice Cube, where he seems to play some kind of teacher, gets yeah. in a fist fight with another teacher. Yeah. Uh it seems like it's probably stupid, but uh you He'll know, make some money though. Probably gonna make some money. And there was an ad for it in a recent UFC. Lots of ads, yeah, that's
0: why I remember it. Well,
1: there was an ad that Nate Diaz was in, where yes. he beats up a teacher or something. Um and you're thinking, Oh, hey, here's Nate Diaz showing up in this ad. According to him, uh, he said his, his friend got him this, this gig, uh, got him this spot, uh, promoting this movie. Um, and then he said that the UFC tried to talk them out of it. So, this is the quote. The UFC is like, we're thinking GSP or Conor McGregor. My guy said, don't worry, we're going to use Nate. They came back to say, we really think you should use GSP or Conor. I don't know what it is. I'm not a white boy with blue eyes, a great looking. I talk all in parentheses, messed up. I think you could probably guess what he actually said. I'm not the look they're going for, but this is fighting. You don't go for a look. You go for the baddest that's out there. This is an example of my whole career. And normally when Nate Diaz starts talking with these kind of borderline paranoid delusions about how the world is out to get him, uh, I just figure that's normal Diaz brother stuff. But if the UFC really came in there after he had secured this spot on his own and tried to talk them out of it, tried to say, hey, GSP or Conor McGregor, and said, are you fucking kidding me? The guy's out there hustling, getting this stuff on the side like you always say you want these guys to do. Like they got to do for themselves now that Reebok's taken over and they can't get their own sponsors out there on TV in the cage. And then you try to snatch it out from under him? Are you fucking
0: kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, this week I'm saying, are you fucking kidding me? How the fuck at UFC 209 are we going to show Francis and Ganu sitting cage side, dressed like the bad guy in a Rocky movie, and everybody besides me is going to act like they didn't even notice? Are you fucking kidding me? Francis Ngannou is dressed like the linebacker character in an early 90s movie about the seedy underbelly of the NFL. And we're just going to act like he's not. First of all, three-piece purple windowpane suit. He got style. With a pink shirt and a purple tie with a gold tie clip. And then, just in case you haven't quite completed the look, smoked out sunglasses with a gold fucking bar across the top. It's magnificent. Looked man. like he was rocking a little gold bracelet too on the wrist. He's Bruce Buffer sees Francis Ngannou that night and he's like, "Damn, I'm slacking." <laughs> making Bruce Buffer feel
1: underdressed out this mug
0: Ben are you fucking kidding me I'm I feel i getting a sneaking feeling like Francis Ngannou is trying to be my guy
1: did you see this picture of here, here Francis Ngannou and Alistair Overeem standing next to each other Alistair Overeem probably Whoa. thought he dressed up nice for this got his black suit on his, his red power tie out there and standing next to Francis Ngannou he looks like a senior on picture day <laughs>
0: Fra- uh, alice roverham looks like he just lost the republican primary to donald trump in that picture (laughs) francis Nganu looks like the bad dude in rocky movie also francis Nganu, much larger than alice roverham in that picture Uh, i mean maybe he's standing on a milk crate but i doubt it i doubt it too anyway that's gonna do it for round number two we'll be right back with round number two right what round did we just do round one that was round one we went 17 damn minutes i'm exhausted i can see it be right back with round two
1: But I don't have to sit here and tell you that the main event of UFC 209, featuring Tyron Woodley and Steven Wonderman Thompson, was not a good fight. Some might even call it a bad fight. All I'm going to say is this tells you something about the fight itself. You know, as well as I do, that one of the things MMA fans love most is arguing over judges' scorecards. Even arguing over judges' scorecards, in which we all agree on the right outcome being decided... If we think that one guy got a 30-27 when well really it should have been a 29-28, we will get on the internet and argue that shit and waste our lives away in the process. Yep. And yet here was a fight where the scores were at least questionable, the outcome was at least uh, something that could have been argued over and people just didn't even want to do it. Yeah. They didn't even want to go down that rabbit hole because they just wanted to move on with their lives and forget this fight ever happened. It was that lackluster, or that forgettable, that even though there was plenty of room to argue about scores in this one, man, we just didn't have it in us anymore after that.
0: Yeah, This and scorecard-wise, this is one of those weird fights where I feel like if you watched it and you consider the totality of the fight, you have a vague sense that Stephen Thompson did slightly better than Tyron Woodley. Yet at the same time, as the fight was happening, and you're thinking about how the judges are probably going to score it according to a round by round 10 point must system. Only two of these rounds had anything really significant happen in them. Round three and round five. And Tyron Woodley kind of inarguably won both of those yes. round three with his takedown and round, round five when he damn near, uh, finished Steven Thompson against the fence. So when you think about it that way, you got two rounds in the pocket for Tyron Woodley back. He's got those in his back pocket and he's taking them to the bank. You're asking at least two of those judges to give all three of those other rounds where almost nothing happened to Steven Thompson. To me, that's a long shot. Like that just ain't going to happen as far as I, as far as I know. So I was not surprised to see Tyron Woodley win this decision. Uh, like everyone else in the world, I feel relieved that we are able to now move on from this pairing, uh, despite the fact that Maybe for reasons I can no longer even articulate, I was excited to watch this fight. And then they go out there and they have this fight that is just a stinker. This is just a terrible fight. Uh, and I, but I think for kind of good reasons, you know, uh, or at least understandable reasons. Understandable, I I would say, yeah. Uh, and like I always say, if you want this shit to be real and you want to have these fights for real and you want this to be sports, sometimes the sports ain't good, man. Sometimes the game is not good. Sometimes the tennis match is not good. And sometimes Tyron Woodley and Stephen Thompson go out there and do their best Dan Severn Ken Shamrock in Detroit impression and walk around in a circle for 25 minutes.
1: Well, and I think that this was a consequence of them getting to know each other so well in their first fight that they both came in there with things clearly that they did not want to have happen. Yeah. That happened in the first fight and had kind of like counter strategies to the other guy's strategies but then they had both gone back into the laboratory and made those adjustments and the result was kind of a nullification uh, for the most part uh, of each other Uh, and except for you see Tyrone Woodley can still do the Tyrone Woodley thing where he can come out of nowhere uh, hit you one time and the fight's almost over right now I know I just said that this was so bad people didn't even want to argue about the scorecards but I do think this one gives us an interesting kind of case study yeah Uh, because for one thing, the, one of the changes in the new rules, which the Nevada State Athletic Commission has not yet adopted, may still adopt, uh, like later this summer. But one of the new changes is to make the options for scoring a 10-8 a little more open, uh, encouraging a little more 10-8s to try to reflect the difference between winning around by a little and winning it by a lot. Um, now those rules weren't, weren't in play here, but the executive director of the Nevada Commission, Bob Bennett, showed up at the press conference. This is a weird thing, which does not usually happen, uh, to kind of answer questions about the scoring in this one. And he went out there and kind of publicly said that Saul D'Amato, who scored a 10-8 in that fifth round where Tyron Woodley nearly put away Stephen Thompson, said that he that that was unacceptable, that he should have scored that one a 10-9. Really? You didn't see this. Uh, yeah. No,
0: I didn't see it, but I would think the exact opposite. Well, I see, would think that's a 10-8
1: round. Well, and he was the only one to score at a 10-8 round. Um, and he said that that was an unacceptable score because Stephen Thompson had been winning that round up until that point. It was looking like a 10-9 round for Stephen Thompson. Tyron Woodley knocks him, knocks him down, nearly puts him away. Yeah. I mean, you could have stepped in there and stopped it, and there might have been some complaints about it, but nobody would have been able to say that it was completely out of the blue. Uh, and yet he, his argument was basically – you can't have a three-point swing in the span of, like, 20 seconds or whatever it was. Yeah, and
0: I understand that, and I think that that's probably a valid point. But I also think in my mind-brain, how do you not let the rest of this terrible fight impact how you score that that last minute, right? Like, we just watched 23 and a half minutes of these guys uh, staring at each other, both of them seemingly terrified to engage the other one, or waiting to counter-strike one of the two. Uh, when a dude... Almost finishes it in the last minute of the fight. How do you not be like, 10-8? Like, yeah. that was the most the most impressive thing we've seen in the entire fight. By like, far the most significant action of the fight. Um, And yet, like,
1: the 10-point must system kind of discourages you from thinking that way. You're supposed to think of, like, every round, like, distinct from each other. Not, you know, scoring the rounds in comparison to one another. Yeah. And, and yet, I mean, at the same time, I mean, how do you give... How do you say... That the round in which, you know, the usual stuff happened and then one guy almost ended the fight, like, how do you say that gets the same score as, say, the first round where yeah. Steven Thompson just kind of controlled it, did slightly more.
0: Right. And if you look at the stats, like, uh, I don't have them in front of me, but I read Brett Okamoto's story about 10-10 rounds and whether or not they should be more prevalent. And I believe that the, the fight metric stats say that in the first round, both guys landed, like something ridiculous, like five significant strikes a piece, but that Tyron Woodley was slightly more efficient with his striking, which Tyron Woodley probably threw like five strikes and landed them all because that's how this stinker of a fight went. But like that first round is totally up for grabs as far as I'm concerned when your striking stats are like that. And one of the problems to me with the 10-point must system, which I continue to think is kind of a blunt instrument to score action as nuanced as sometimes MMA fights can be. But uh one of the problems with the way with like the rules of MMA scoring is like once you get that nullification of striking and like there's essentially no grappling in that round, you move on to somewhat amorphous things like aggression and octagon control. And man, I've been watching this thing a long ass time. I still don't know if I could tell you exactly what octagon control is from one moment to the next well
1: that's a a, you know another thing that the new rules which again were not in place here kind of addressed to try to put those on the proper tiers to make sure we know we're going down a checklist and not trying to consider them all at the same time um but you know and i also wrote something about the 10 10 round thing because one of the things that bob bennett said when he showed up was that basically he doesn't believe in 10 10 rounds he didn't he didn't actually say that but you know he goes out there and he says basically that like If you're watching a five-minute round, a judge – I think he said top-notch A-plus judges ought to be able to watch five minutes and be able to say who won. Uh, If there are
0: top-notch A-plus judges in this game, someone tell me who they are because (laughs) I don't fucking know them. Well, then
1: afterwards when John Morgan asked him a follow-up question basically saying like, hey, wait a minute. Did you just say that a 10-10 round shouldn't exist? And he was like, oh, no, not at all. They can score however they want to. But you did just say that you thought the good judges will, will not score 10-10 rounds. Uh, and I asked, you know, I asked Andy Foster in California, what did he think of that? I asked John McCarthy, you know, who runs like that whole training uh, thing for uh, refs and judges and officials and everything and, and has people go through and score fights. Like, do you think that 10-10s? And they all kind of said the same thing, like, you ought to be able to pick a winner. But some of that stuff is so close that it does seem like if you're telling them, like, hey, you, you should be able to tell us if you sat there and watched five minutes. You should give the edge to somebody. But man, if they both landed five strikes, you know, and both attempted 10 and they each got a takedown, you know, there are going to be some of those instances where you're basically pressuring somebody to say somebody won
0: and they're kind to kind of flip a coin in their yeah. mind. I kind of think the exact opposite of what all those people are saying is true. Like even though nobody who pays 60 bucks to watch a fight card on television wants to see a draw. Like for the sake of the action, I feel like sometimes you just got to round by round say that round was a draw. I believe like I it, remember me, you
1: doing that when you – the one time you served as a judge uh, here at a fight in the Missoula Fairgrounds when when Bloodbath Brian McGrath uh, fought – what's his name? Hart, something yeah, Hart. Ryan Hart, I believe. Ryan team, Hart. From, there you from go. From Team Quest. From Team Quest. And I think they went and had a close first round. And I remember Chad Dennis, uh turning and looking at me saying, fuck it. I'm scoring that 10-10. Yeah.
0: The, the bold move. That what what do you what do you call me an uh, a, a plus top shelf elite judge? Right I wouldn't there. I
1: wouldn't say that a plus wouldn't go that far.
0: I'm gonna put in my application in Nevada. Move the kids down there. <laughs> take up a professional life judging.
1: Well, I and mean, you're gonna be getting the pages at the blackjack table is what's gonna happen.
0: <laughs> Francis, Donnie, hold my cards. I'll be back. Uh, at least this goddamn thing is over. At hopefully, least no one's gonna be asking for a third one. Hopefully we get Damien Maya in and out of this all fight or something and we get a clear-cut contender at 170 pounds but uh we'll see we'll see what happens
1: if not that then jesus christ that's a barren wasteland out there
0: as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and move on to round number three Saturday night on Fox Sports 1, UFC Fight Night 106, emanating live from the Centro de Formacao Olimpica de Nordeste Granddaddy in of them Fortaleza, all. Brazil. My yeah. apologies to any native Portuguese speakers who just suffered through my pronunciation or of just that anyone.
1: Venue. any person with ears,
0: Any anyone else. The main event of this thing, a middleweight matchup between Vitor Belfort and Kelvin Gastelum, as you just pointed out to me. Uh, as we before we started recording, a sixth fight main card, aka the anti Dundas. uh, I know how you love those on Fox Sports One. Uh, main crawl along from commercial to commercial. Main event, I feel at least kind of interesting. Uh, and other than that, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, you got uh, Juicy A Formiga on here against Ray Borg, that might be kind of interesting. Uh, the upside down cowboy, Alex Oliveira against Tim Means, that's the curtain jerker. Uh, Josh Berkman. Is on this card, the people's warrior. What? So that's something to look forward to. Uh, but It's in uh, Barboza
1: versus Benil Dariush. That could be fun.
0: Let's just say uh, nothing on here that's going to knock it out of the park ratings wise if Vitor Belfort is not going to bring the people in. Uh, but, but nonetheless.
1: What about the raw athleticism of Bech Kohea against Marion Renault?
0: Yep. And that's, that's definitely going to happen.
1: I can see the enthusiasm on your face.
0: We did uh, see Kelvin Gastelum make his return to middleweight at UFC 206 in December, uh, and beat Tim Kennedy via third-round TKO. Uh, before that, he beat Johnny Hendricks at a catchweight, and Johnny Hendricks is also back up at, at, or up at middleweight now for the first time. Uh, Kelvin Gastelum, I guess, is going to try to make a run here. Uh, does it mean anything, or what does it mean at this point, Ben, to beat uh, the 39-year-old, almost 40-year-old version of Vitor Belfort, uh, who comes into this fight? just one and three dating back to uh, his fight against Chris Weidman in May of 2015. Uh, what, what, what kind of feather in the cap of Kelvin Gaslam will it be to beat Vitor Belfort in this matchup? If that happens,
1: uh, it means progressively less as time goes on, but still the name is the name and that means something. It's going to look good on the Wikipedia page, right? right if that especially happens? if you can get enough distance from it, that people forget when in the, the Vitor Belfort timeline it happened It's still, you know, if people look at your record and see wins over Tim Kennedy and then Vitor Belfort and they start to think, oh, all right, Kelvin Gastelum's telling us he's for real. I think more importantly, it seems like I like what the UFC is doing here, which is tricking Kelvin Gastelum into being a middleweight. Because remember that after he beat Tim Kennedy at middleweight, looked good doing it, and everybody said, all right, hey, maybe he can make it at middleweight. Maybe he doesn't have to continue to unsuccessfully make welterweight. Uh, maybe he actually can stick around at middleweight and see what he can do there. And he was like immediately, no, 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 I will not attempt that good idea. I right. will go back to the same bad idea that I had screwed up over and over again. And everybody kind of went, oh, that's too bad. And then the UFC said, oh, wait a minute. We have something that might interest you here at middleweight. And it was like a high-profile enough fight, an interesting enough fight for him to say, all right, I'll stay at middleweight. And I really hope – that he wins this, and then they just keep doing this. They just keep coming up with something too tantalizing for him to resist. And before he knows it, he's been a middleweight for six years.
0: So you think that they're going to be like, oh, you're going back to welterweight, huh? Have There's a guy you may have heard of by the name of Anderson Silva. I guess you don't want to fight Anderson Silva. That's oh, well. okay. Don't worry, Kelvin. I'll just take this contract between you and Anderson Silva and feed it into the shredder here. <laughs> oh, wait, what? What's that? Yeah, exactly. I could I could get into that. I could get in
1: this is one where I could appreciate the UFC pulling off a long con on Kelvin Gastelum that everybody but him sees happening.
0: They've also got him slotted in at the middleweight rankings at number ten overall and Vitor Belfort number nine uh at this point. Really? So uh that maybe that was massaged. Okay. To seem seem a little bit more uh competitive or whatever. Uh actually it it seems like a competitive fight to me on, on paper. Vitor Belfort still can be kind of good when the fight starts. Uh, Although, just considering the way Kelvin Gastelum kind of went out there and worked Tim Kennedy uh, their last time out, it seems like he looks pretty good at this weight. I would definitely make him the favorite, although uh, we talked earlier in the show about what a kind of a rough ride Tim Kennedy had had uh, getting into that UFC 206 fight to begin with. Uh, Wasn't necessarily at his best that night, but a, a solid win all the way around for Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, and at this point, it seems like he could be a capital G guy at middleweight if indeed they are able to trick him into staying there. Are we offering any kind of odds on this fight? Is that... Uh...
1: Yeah, uh, right now it looks like Kelvin Gastelum, a significant favorite, uh, hovering around three and a half to and some places as high as a four to one favorite, which sounds about right to me. I think you're right that Vitor Belfort is still Vitor Belfort in the sense that he is dangerous early on and then less and less so as the fight goes on. Uh, I, it just seems like... The version of Vitor Belfort we've seen recently is both physically and psychologically diminished. And I think that there's a connection between the two of them for him. Uh, I think that, you know, maybe he, his confidence suffers a little bit when, uh, he is physically diminished, when he's a little bit more dad bodish Vitor Belfort. But he still could go out there, especially in Brazil and blitz you inside of two minutes and you could have yourself a real problem. Uh, which I guess if you're Kelvin Gaslum and you're not working that into your preparations, that possibility, then maybe you deserve to get kicked upside your damn head because that's the one thing everybody knows about Vitor Belfort still at this point is that he can still go out there and do that. But I don't know. I, I like Kelvin Gastelum's ability to withstand that and then still have stuff left to, uh, to come back with against a guy like Vitor Belfort. You know, you ask what does it mean for Kelvin Gastelum to beat Vitor at his, this point in his career? What does it mean for Vitor if he can't beat Kelvin Gastelum at this point in his career?
0: Yeah, I don't know, man, and it kind of depends. I mean, we'll know in hindsight, right? Because we'll know how good Kelvin Gastelum ultimately becomes at this weight. We know who Vitor Belfort once was, uh. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it matters who Vitor loses to at this point, uh. Though I guess you could, you could conceivably draw a line in the sand between losing to guys like Chris Weidman, Jacare Souza, and uh, Musasi, and then losing to Kelvin Gastelum. It's just that we don't quite know at this point who Kelvin Gaslam will end up being as a as a middleweight if if that's where he stays. It's kind of interesting to me that B- Vitor Belfort. Uh, you mentioned like the, the psychology of Vitor Belfort. It's kind of interesting to me that uh, if you just think about it that way, he's kind of the same dude now that he was in 1997 yeah. when Randy Couture roughnecked him at UFC 15 when uh, in Vitor's officially his fifth professional MMA fight. And at the time, uh, never forget it as long as I live that the UFC put no known weaknesses yes. up on the screen before that fight as one of Vitor Belfort's physical attributes. Yeah,
1: back when Randy Couture was still trying to act like he had hair.
0: Yeah. Uh, and so, like, interesting that, like, you fast forward uh, 20 damn years, uh, almost 20 years since that fight was in October of 97. God, we're uh, old. How did this happen? I know, right? Uh, watching watching UFC 15 on uh, on VHS cassette tape. Uh, but just interesting that like you, you fast forward 20 years and we're still like that's still the book on Vitor Belfort kind of.
1: Yeah, uh, and it and it was the book on him, you know, 10 years after that when he fought T. Ortiz uh, and uh, like in 2005 where it, you could see that kind of stuff still like you could if you could survive the early danger against Vitor Belfort, you could gradually just squeeze the air out of that balloon and you could see him resigning himself to it more and more as the fight went on you know, I don't see Kelvin Gastelum really trying that approach here. Uh, I see it more as uh, probably going to stay on the feet a, a little more. Um, although, you know, uh, the interesting thing to me with Vitor Belfort is you do have to give him his props in terms of longevity. He'll be yeah. 40 in yeah. April, you know, of this year. So he's been in this game a long damn time, has seen the era change several times at this point. Uh, there is some part of you that, that would like to see Vitor Belfort stick around and, and prove that, like, hey, he can still do it against some of these younger guys. He can he can pull off a win here, especially, you know, at home in Brazil. That would be a big emotional moment for him. Um, the other part of you wonders, is Vitor Belfort going to be one of these guys that has to be dragged out the game?
0: That You might even refer to him as a young dinosaur at <laughs> Maybe, this point. Somebody
1: might if they love to play around with words like that.
0: Uh, you want to do just saying stuff? And then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, this week, I am just saying that every damn time Stephen Thompson goes out there and fights, I spend the next three days with that with that damn Tenacious D song stuck in my head that he walks out to. And like, I get it, man. It's obvious. If your nickname is Wonderboy, you couldn't ask for a better walkout song than one where they say your damn nickname like 800 times in the song. But I also wonder if Stephen Thompson knows that his walkout song is like a comedy rock song from 2001 that appeared on an album with other songs titled things like Fuck Her Gently and Cock Push-Ups and Double Team, which is about what you think it is. <laughs> I mean, he has to, right? If he doesn't, or, he knows
1: now. I assume he's listening.
0: Or, or do you think that like someone was like, oh, man, Steve, I got this great walkout song for you. It's it's called Wonder Boy. You're going to love it.
1: Would it surprise you to learn that if he did acquire, like, a copy of that CD, his dad took it away from him before he could (laughs) listen to it and and hear all that stuff?
0: His dad drove to the dorm where Stephen Thompson lives (laughs) and took his CD, his Tenacious D CD away. And I guess ultimately, Ben, I'm just saying, I don't know if I love it or hate it. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, you
1: mentioned earlier in the show the conversation, uh, in the corner between Darren Elkins and his coaches after he spent the first five minutes of his fight against Mursad Bektik getting the blood beaten out of his head and having several holes elbowed into his face. And when he went back to the corner, they told, (coughs) sorry, they told him this was the fight we expected as if reminding him like, Hey, we talked about this. Don't. Don't act like we didn't know you were going to get the shit beat out of you for five minutes, at least five minutes. We knew this was the fight we expected. I'm just saying.
0: <coughs> Sorry. getting Limp into the ones. clothes here. A yeah. couple of guys with their upper respiratory infections just uh, <coughs> really kind of limping to the finish line here. I'm just saying if that was my coach and in the preparation for this fight,
1: they had told me that this was the kind of fight that they were expecting. I might have asked, Wait, what if we came up with a different plan, though? What if we... I'm just footballing here, what if we tried to figure out a way for me to win this fight without having the holy hell beat out of me first? What if we figured out a way that I could just go out there and win from the beginning? I would hope that my coaches would have something to tell me there other than, look, first of all, this is going to suck for the first five to ten minutes. I'm just saying. That's what I would hope for.
0: Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's uh co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 106 and then look ahead to UFC Fight Night 107 featuring Jimmy Manuel versus Corey Anderson, Connor Nelson versus Alan Joban, and Brad Pickett versus Henry Briones. So you don't want to mess that one. No, you don't. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know... If it was me, and my corner was like, Chad, this is the fight we expected. We knew that you were going to come out and just get the absolute stuff and beat out of you by Mirsa Bectin. I would be like, and you still let me do this? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were supposed to be my friends, damn it. If this is how I would corner you if I were working. I
1: assume I would be working at corner. And the first thing I would say to you when you came back after a round, one was like, look Chad, we all knew
0: you weren't a very good fighter. We knew this was going to happen. If it was me, I'd be like, Ben, you've seen the best of what he got.